It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Hey, welcome into the latest episode of the Show Before the Show podcast, the official podcast of minor league baseball. It is a uh, a new era in the Show Before the Show podcast in that I learned recently that when I send Sam the files for these episodes, there's a feature on Slack where it automatically transcribes the episodes, which I was completely unaware of. And today I was looking at like, what is this weird? This is a strange thing. Why is this showing up with like the text of the podcast? And I open it up and I scrolled down a little bit and I, I arrived at this section of last week's episode of the podcast. We were talking about something and uh, one of the the transcribed lines was quote that looks like a butt unquote uh and that was because we were talking about a minor league baseball team at one time in Gaffney South Carolina the Gaffney Cobblers who have that water tower that looks like a big peach and I said oh yeah it looks like a butt and that got transcribed uh by the good folks at Slash on an automated platform it's very mature what we do at this show hi Sam yeah, it's good to see that stuff in black and white, right? Like we yeah. just say, we just talk into these cans that are microphones right. and think like, oh, it's out in the world now. Yeah, nobody's listen listening, whatever. It's just like when it gets preserved by another service is uh, is very striking. Um, but it is good back to be back with everybody. I, I know you just said, mentioned that episode. That was two weeks ago. Yeah, two weeks we, ago. We, we, we took last week off um, to plan out for the next few weeks, um, including this episode we have this week. Uh, we have some really good stuff in the pipeline, so we're glad to be back with you guys. We are. Uh, and excited for what's coming down the pike. I mean, it's, it's late January now. Pitchers and Catchers is around the corner. Yeah. we're getting, Two weeks, man. Yeah, we're getting promo calendars now. We're we're talking about something big here in this first segment. That is always a sign of the coming season. So uh, feeling a little bit refreshed after taking a week off. And, and thank you for your patience and, and joining us, you know, back up with us here on the, in the late January. Absolutely. He is Sam Dykstra. I am Tyler Mon. Benjamin Hill will join us coming up here in a little bit. Uh, we are thrilled today on this week's episode of the show. Before the show, we are going to be joined by one of the most discussed names in baseball over the last couple of weeks, and that is Ronnie Gajownik, the uh, new manager of the High A Hillsboro Hops, who will join the show coming up here in just a little bit. Ronnie becoming the first woman to take over as manager at the high A level in minor league baseball, which is super cool. Really excited to talk with Ronnie. Um, and yeah, as Sam noted, really excited for uh, what we got coming up for you this season on the minor league baseball podcast, a little bit of inside baseball. Uh, we've kind of been trying to figure out, you know, what is the, the road ahead for the show before the show look like? How do we continue to make it fresh? We've done the show for seven seasons now, and we've generally followed a pretty similar format since season one with, with Jake Siner, RIP Jake, um, where we've gone, you know, opening segment, talked about the topics of the day, interview, Ben, blah, blah, blah. But we're going to bring you some fun and new creative stuff uh, as this season goes along. 
on the show before the show, and we are really excited about it. Uh, so we'll hear from Ronnie. We're also going to talk about the culmination of our effort two weeks ago to design a fictional minor league baseball team name, logo, hat, all of it uh, for National Hat Day. Uh, Vince Petafrezzo, who is one of the best dudes that we come across in our uh, our daily uh, work at MILB. Vince, a graphic designer who does, if you've ever seen a graphic come out from MILB and thought that's awesome. Well, that's Vince. Uh, so Vince, and I should say from MILB as in MILB.com, not that like every team is done by Vince, but Vince probably could do just about every team. His work is amazing. Vince came up with the look for our fictional team, the Austin Knights. Uh, we'll catch up about the Knights coming up here shortly and uh, a lot to get to on this week's episode of the show before the show. And as Sam noted, we will kick things off with the biggest discussion point for prospect fans as we head into any minor league baseball season. And that is the brand new top 100 prospects list, which is uh, now, by the time you are hearing this, Live at MLB.com, MLB Pipeline's Top 100 uh, has arrived with a brand new top prospect in baseball, as if Baltimore Orioles fans needed anything to be more pumped about prospect-wise going into a new season. You now have the number one overall prospect in baseball. Friend of the show, Gunnar Henderson, is the new number one the third base slash shortstop prospect uh, who has already played 36 days in the big leagues or has been on the big league uh, squad for 36 days. So likely headed toward the graduation uh, from his prospect status fairly shortly into uh, this 2023 season. Gunnar Henderson, our new number one. Uh, we're going to talk about some items through the top 100, but let's start there, Sam. What makes Gunnar Henderson the number one prospect in baseball coming into this season? Yeah, so you mentioned this is a change, right? Like we did our midseason update last year in August. Uh, we named Francisco Alvarez the Mets catcher number one overall prospect then, and we saw it kind of as a big three. This isn't always the case, but it's a conversation we had last year between Bobby Witt Jr., Adley Rutschman, and Julio Rodriguez. We saw it as the big three. This time around, it was Francisco Alvarez, Gunnar Henderson, and Corbin Carroll, who we think of as kind of separated themselves from the group. Now, since we did that re-rank in August, Gunnar Henderson and Corbin Carroll, as you mentioned, Tyler, both have ample major league experience and success. It's not just that they got to the majors. They both held themselves incredibly well. The advantage that I think Gunnar Henderson has over Corbin Carroll, over Francisco Alvarez, is that we believe just the overall offensive package is going to be greater than the other two guys. Corbin Carroll can really hit. Um, he has a little bit more power than you would expect if you just look at him. But Gunnar Henderson can hit. He can walk. He can hit with authority. We gave his power a 65 on the 20 to 80 scale, which is bordering on plus plus. Um, he can really play a good third base. He was brought up as a shortstop, as you mentioned. I mean, in another system, there's a decent chance that Gunnar Henderson would still be a shortstop. And then this would not be a debate. I think where the debate comes is, okay, if he's third base, third baseman usually have to hit a little bit more than shortstop. Can he do that? We believe so. I mean, that he's just he's proved that he can do that at every level. He was young for double A. He was young for triple A. He was certainly young for the majors last year. He ticks every box that we're looking for. He's athletic, above average speed. You could even put plus speed on that if you wanted. We have it at 55, but you could go even above that, given what he was showing at when he was hitting top speed in the majors last year. Like you said, Tyler, as if the Orioles need another primo prospect. 
uh, another guy who's entering the year in the number one discussion after was Adley Rutschman last year. Gunnar Henderson is it. I mean, he should be in their opening day lineup. I think it's going to be at third base, uh, but just because Jorge Mateo had a really strong year at shortstop last year. They have Joey Ortiz, who's coming up behind him, who's a really, really strong defender at six. Um, but all of that put together, like Gunnar Henderson is a true five-tool talent. And the fact that he has, we think, just a little bit more power. I won't even say a little bit. He has a tick more power than Corbin Carroll. Gives him the advantage here because it is going to be the stick that's the driving tool for both of these guys. But it is a conversation. You know, Francisco Alvarez, why did he drop three? It's always the defense with him, right? Like the power, the raw power is top of the scale. It's it's 80 raw power. We have him at 70 in-game. It really plays. I always go back to the Buck Showalter quote from last spring of, you know, they were trying to put the the pitch uh, like wristband on him to call pitches as everybody was getting used to that in the spring. He couldn't fit it over his forearm because his arms are so big. So just, gigantic. Yeah. yeah, that is uh, – That's uh, I've never had that problem. <laughs> I have not either. With if anything, they might have to like squeeze it down a little bit. <laughs> they have to like uh, – they have to wrap it around a second time like, a, like an asparagus stalk with a rubber band. There you go. Uh, yeah, we don't have that problem. Francisco Alvarez certainly does. He backs it up. The exit velos are tremendous. The power he shows, the way he can drive the ball uh, when he really gets behind one is really special. It's just, who is he defensively? He had an ankle injury at the end of last year that delayed his defensive development. It's gotten to the point where the bat is way ahead of, of the defense. And if they were at the same level, he might be entering the year at double A, right? Like he needs that experience catching upper level uh, arms, but he's not being challenged offensively anymore. So it's going to be an interesting mix for the Mets. Maybe they try to work him in. I know they have plentiful DH options, and uh, you know they're actually pretty set at catcher right now entering the year. Alvarez is probably their third catcher. How do they work that? We'll see. But it's just if he is able to stick a catcher at all, even if he's slightly below average, the bat is just so special that he could be a multi-time all-star. And I I made this comparison last year, just how good he is with power and the bat overall. He could be 75% Mike Piazza, uh, which, you know, should send all sorts of signals out to Mets fans about just how good he can be. And that might not sound great, but that's 75% of a Hall of Famer for a guy we're talking about with very limited major league experience. It's really special. That's what solidified them amongst their top three. But Gunnar Henderson just separates himself, the ability to be a five-tool talent with power, with a hit tool, with ability to take a walk. He's playing on the dirt. Those guys don't come around very often. He's, you know, when we voted, it was unanimous among us three. We got feedback. Nobody said, hey, take Corbin or put Corbin Carroll above him. Or nobody said, like, Gunnar Henderson, knock him down a few pegs. The entire industry is excited about this guy. So that is your new number one. Now, there are a, a few spots that we're going to talk about throughout the top 10, the top 100. Uh, but, of course, you can check the entirety of the top 100 at MLB Pipeline. And uh, we also have a new top pitching prospect in baseball, Andrew Painter in the Philadelphia Phillies organization, who climbed through like 18 different levels last season. Uh, Andrew Painter, really, really impressive 2022 Vaults over Grayson Rodriguez is the top pitching prospect in baseball. Grayson Rodriguez was in that final tune-up start before we anticipated uh, that he would be in Baltimore to start his big league career in that rotation and then was injured in that AAA start uh, for Norfolk. So uh, an unfortunate turn of events for Grayson Rodriguez, but obviously his profile is still extremely impressive. 
But Andrew Painter being that new number one uh, pitching prospect in baseball, what do you like most about him, Sam? Yeah, I mean, you start with, I guess, size. He's six foot seven. I mean, I remember having this discussion amongst ourselves last year going into the top 100 of like Andrew Painter, who was the 13th overall pick in 2021, was maybe on the periphery of the top 100. It's just very projectable size. The stuff was looking pretty good going into his first full year. We just hadn't seen it over a large sample. And then all of a sudden, and this isn't totally based on stats, but when a guy has a 156 ERA in his first full season, over 103 and two thirds innings across three levels, and is finishing out his first full season at double A, and oh, by the way, isn't just finishing out the season there, but has a 254 ERA at double A a year after he was pitching in high school. And this is my favorite bit he threw 28 and a third innings at double A. Like the most experienced batters he's ever faced, guys who are very disciplined, who know what the strike zone are, who are patient and are usually only going to swing at their pitches. He walked two batters in 28 and the third innings. At the end of the year, he could have easily been breaking down. He could have been, you know, like struggling with how do I approach these guys? No, he, he walked two batters and struck out 37. He just seemed to be gaining momentum as the year went on. Um, the stuff itself is really good. We gave a 70 grade to the fastball. His slider is plus. His changeup is above average. He has a curveball. Um, but I think it's just that control. You don't find many six foot seven guys who can pinpoint the ball like Andrew Painter can. I mean, usually when you have guys that size with a fastball like him, we're talking about, well, they don't know where it's going. Like maybe someday he'll figure it out. He's already figured it out. It's really special. He's only turning 20 years old on April 10th. It's just all those confluence of factors that kind of pushed him over the edge for us. Now, you mentioned Grayson Rodriguez, certainly in that conversation, and they're back-to-back in the top 100. I mean, there's not much separating these two guys. Painter is number six. Grayson Rodriguez is number seven. It's just the fact that Rodriguez is coming off a latch drain, which is a little worrisome. It sounds like coming back, he wasn't quite as masterful as he was before. Makes sense. You take a few months off, that's going to happen. Um, but just all that momentum that Painter has and the fact that he's younger and already at double A and could be a major league factor this year, it, it just tipped him over the edge for us. But it, it, if you wanted to flip either of those two guys, because I think Grayson Rodriguez might have a slightly deeper arsenal than Andrew Painter, I wouldn't argue against it. Um, you have to make a call at a certain point, and we just took the guy who is coming off a really, really special season. Let's continue along a little bit further down uh, the top 100, not too far down. A guy who always catches both of our eyes when it comes to prospect discussions and rankings and all of that is uh, Milwaukee Brewers outfield prospect Jackson Churio. Now, Jackson Churio was entirely out of the top 100 to start the 2022 season and then just flew through a breakout campaign uh, in the minor leagues. And now... Not only a top 100 prospect, he is a top 10 prospect. He's the number eight prospect in baseball. What is next for Jackson Churio? Because we've seen guys who have sort of that prospect helium. They have that big breakout season, and then they start coming back to earth. I don't necessarily think he is one of those guys, but what do you have to see from Jackson Churio in 2023 to, you know, not necessarily justify that ranking, but see uh, him continue to progress the way he did last year? Yeah, I mean, I think the big thing for Jackson Churio is he is as tooled up as anybody in this top 10. I mean, the speed is plus plus. He has really good power, which, again, is not something you would expect out of a guy who's listed at six foot one, 165 pounds. But talking to some Brewers people last year, they were just like, it's amazing at how well he's able to flick the ball 
even to right center, even to right. Like he can drive the ball with authority all over the diamond. Uh, and he's doing that at such a young age. I mean, he was in his age 18 season last year, skipped right over the complex leagues, and the Brewers couldn't find a challenge for him. They sent him to single A. They sent him to high A. And they ended the year at double A, which is actually where this next point comes, Tyler, because you were mentioning, like, what do you need to see from him this year? And he was challenged at double A. Some of the swing decisions that he has and some of the bat-on-ball skills are a little bit lacking. Now, he's shown a really promising ability to make adjustments. Um, I remember talking to some folks and hearing, like, he struggles with the breaking ball away. And as he saw more of that, he adjusted to it. He knew that's how he's being pitched. That's how he started hitting the ball the opposite way. But now, after seeing Biloxi last year, you know, it, it might have been the end of a long season, uh, but he was two for 23. Not great, with 11 strikeouts. So he was just not putting the bat on the ball, and that is where we put on the brakes a little bit is, yes, he has all these tools. He can be a really special center fielder, has some questions about the arm, but he won a minor league gold glove last year. Like He impressed a lot of folks with his defense, which is incredible for a guy who was originally signed as a shortstop. And they put him in center field because of the arm concerns and because they thought, let's just let this guy gallop. Let's just get him out in as much space as possible, let him track down balls, and he does that well. It's just, how is he going to allow those skills to play? Ending it a little bit on a sour note, albeit on a very aggressive assignment, brings into questions about the hit tool. Can he make those adjustments? He's going to have the time to do so. It wouldn't surprise me if he spends a lot of this year at AA, just getting those at-bats, seeing the things that he needs to adjust, trying to make the better swing decisions We're realizing, hey, this is where my power really plays. I can flick it to right center if I need to, but is that my best approach? Because I'm going to be swinging and missing at that pitch a lot, trying to get a double into the gap, you know, which might happen once or twice a week. Let's try to hone in on where I'm best uh, working in the zone. That's the next step for him. If that happens, and again, his ability to make adjustments is really special. I wouldn't bet against it. He's my bet to be the number one prospect going into next year. Because I think he can make you heard adjustments. it here first. Yeah, he could be a 30-30 guy. He had 20 homers and 16 stolen bases last year. I think he gets a little bit more aggressive on the base pass, knows his speed. I think he adds even a little bit more power as he physically matures. He could easily challenge for that. While still not making the majors because Milwaukee has such a loaded outfield because they got to find a spot for Sal Fralick. they got to find a spot for Garrett Mitchell. they got to find a spot for Joey Weimer. And those are just the guys who are prospects still, never mind the guys they have at the major league level. So I don't think he's necessarily going to force his way in there, but I think if those offensive adjustments happen, Churio is, is your number one guy heading into 2024. There are two traditions when it comes to the uh, time of the year when the top 100 prospect list comes out. One of those is being excited about the top 100 prospects list. The other is yelling angrily about the top 100 prospects list. Sam, uh, among the top 100, which prospect do you uh, assume will most cause consternation among prospect fans whether it's because they think their guy and their organization is the best of all and you didn't see it that way or because of your well-known biases against you know i don't know fill in the blank i'm sure somebody will accuse you of that who's gonna who's gonna be most upset about things and why i mean we already got a taste of this because we release our top 10 positional lists right first. so you can so sort of piece together who's going where based on the top 10 positional list if you're real eagle-eyed right right 
So we released our shortstop list, which I got to do the write-up of and the breakdown of on MLB.com. And it's such a fun list to dive into uh, just because it is so deep. I think everybody in the top 10 shortstops list is within our top 40 overall prospects. Um, it's really a really great list. And just to make the top 10 shortstops list, I think is an honor or, you know, is really difficult to do. But you mentioned like people think we have biases and it doesn't help that we have the number one guy is a Yankee. The number two guy is a Red Sox. Like that's just the way it worked out. I promise you. Sure it did. No, I promise you. Like, again, we get <laughs> industry feedback on this stuff. We incorporate things. We get lots of opinions. It is not just three dudes, one of whom lives in Chicago, one of whom lives in Pittsburgh. I live in New York, but like we're all spread out. I'm sorry. There is no bias here. But Anthony Volpe as our number one shortstop, Marcelo Meyer as our number two shortstop. And the guy at number three, I think, is going to get a lot of attention because he might be the most electric prospect in the minor leagues. It's Ellie De La Cruz of the Cincinnati Reds. Now, why do we have him at number three? And then, you know, looking at where he fits in the in the overall list, it's number 10. So he's number 10. He's a, the 10th best prospect in baseball. Again, incredibly difficult to get to that spot. Um but, you know, coming off the year that he had last year at high A, at double A, I think a lot of people look at the, the numbers, 28 homers, 47 stolen bases. We were talking about him potentially getting to a 30-40 season, which is very rare in the minor leagues. Um, he batted 304. He had a 945 OPS, again, reaching double A. Really, really overall strong numbers. He also struck out 30% of the time. The list of people who strike out 30% of the time at high A and double A and have success with the hit tool at the majors is not a very long list. It's very short. Um, you know, we're talking about like Joey Gallo level strikeout numbers in the minor leagues. And we, we've seen what Joey Gallo is now. I mean, yes, he has as much raw power as anybody in the major leagues, but he was a free agent this year and he didn't have people banging down the door, signing him to a six or seven year deal. He ends up with the twins. We'll see how that works out. Um, but the industry obviously does not value him as much. I don't think Eli De Cruz is going to be Joey Gallo. He's a really, really good runner. He's supremely athletic. He steals more bases than that guy. He brings so much to the table. It's just the questions with the hit tool. What's going to happen with him as he climbs the ladder? He's going to face, you know, probably double A pitching again next year, maybe even triple A pitching. Those guys are going to take advantage of the holes in his swing. And we have some questions about like, who is he defensively? I think he's, uh, you know, he's at, certainly athletic enough for shortstop. He has the arm for shortstop. But they've also tried him out in third base. You know, there's some rumblings like, what would he look like as a center fielder? All premium positions, but still, there's some defensive questions there as well. He is just so raw. He just turned 21 years old. So if he's 21 years old in the upper minors, that's young for that. Um, I think there's just more to it than when you look at the numbers and think, this guy hit 300 and nearly hit 30 homers and stole 40 bases. Like, that's great. Why isn't he the number one prospect in baseball? It's like, well, dig it a little deeper. You can find some holes in the swing and, and some bigger question marks, but it's so rare that we have a guy with 30% strike rate in the top 10 to begin with. And that's a credit to him because of the rest of the tools are so good. Anything else from the top 100 that uh, you want to highlight, Sam, or that you want to make sure we point out and acknowledge? I mean, obviously there are, you know, draft selections from last year who are ranked pretty highly. Drew Jones is number 15 overall from the D-backs organization. Um, Termar Johnson, who is, I believe, our top-ranked second-base prospect this year, correct? He is now number 27 overall. Is there anybody else who really sticks out that you think, like, keep an eye on this person or this is a, a theme to watch in this system? Anything else that uh, that we should acknowledge? 
approach to people before they dive in and digest the top 100 on their own? Well, I mean, you mentioned draft picks, so I, I have to bring up Jackson Holiday in that I think if you look going into last year's draft, Drew Jones, I think, was the better prospect. And it was a little bit of a shock to see Jackson Holiday go first overall to the Orioles because they seemingly were going for the best prospect. They weren't going for necessarily just uh, signability or somebody who would take you know a haircut in the draft. But Jackson Holiday last year, you know, starting out in the Florida Complex League, moving up to single A, again, shortly after he was playing in an Oklahoma high school, showed a really, really impressive strikeout to walk ratio. He walked 25 times and only struck out 12 in 20 games. Like that's really impressive plate discipline for anybody, especially for a young teenager who just got drafted and was thrown into the deep end of the minor leagues. Like, I don't know exactly where he's going to land. It could be small sample stuff. It, you know, this is over 20 games between the complex league and single A, and crazy things can happen. But usually, crazy things like that don't happen. And I know Jim and Jonathan believe he can be the number one overall prospect going into 2024, especially if all this continues, because he has probably a better chance to stick at shortstop than Gunnar Henderson does. He's another five tool guy. All five tools grade out at least above average. Maybe we're talking about the hit above 60 if this continues at all uh, as he does takes on a full season. So Jackson Holiday is somebody I just want to highlight real quick. Um, he enters right now at number 12, which is three spots ahead of Drew Jones. Uh, but he has as much helium as anybody in this draft or in, in this top 100 that we just put together. And one guy I'll just throw out there too, and I'm really glad we got him on here, was Miguel Blaise of the Boston Red Sox. We have him at number 93. I don't want to say he's going to be this year's Jackson Churio, but he started to put in the pieces last year where you're getting whispers of like, this guy could really be a top 25 prospect. The the, the tools are there. It's plus power, above average speed. He throws really well from the outfield. We just need to see it over a full season. And it's kind of like, well, if the pieces are there. We might as well rank them now. So I'm glad we did at number 93. But if he does what he did last year, over 100-plus games, I mean, he's a top 25 prospect, I think, in the game by the end of the year. So if you want to have somebody circled for, like, this guy's going to make the biggest jump uh, in 2023, I think it starts with him. You can check out the Top 100 Prospects list at MLB Pipeline. You can send us your questions, thoughts, comments, concerns, podcast at MILB.com. And uh, coming up, we are headed to the Arizona Diamondbacks organization here in our final episode of January 2023. That's how close we're getting to the season because we're already talking with minor league coaching staffs and players and everybody else. And the first female manager in the high A level in minor league baseball, Ronnie Gajownik, joins this week's episode of the show before the show. Coming up next. To the much warmer state of Arizona than where Sam and I currently sit right now in New York and Denver, respectively. We are headed to Scottsdale, where we get a chance to check up with the conversation piece of uh, of baseball managerial ranks this week. The newest pilot of the High A Hillsboro Hops, Ronnie Gajownik, joins the show. Ronnie, it's so good to talk to you. We've we've been on Zoom for like five minutes. I feel like the three of us are already going to like just go get a beer sometime. Yeah, uh, sounds great. great. Cider donuts. Yeah, I mean, what what could go wrong? Cider donuts. Oregon wine. Oregon yeah. wine. Yeah, it's great. It's going to be a great time whenever we all see each other in person. So exactly. I'm really looking forward to it. <laughs> Okay, picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. 
I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Uh, I do have to ask first, how is it in Arizona right now? It's January 25th here. It's snow. Well, the snow just stopped here in New York. It's just been cold and gray. What's the status in Scottsdale right now? Uh, I mean, you're saying it's warm, but I'm still currently wearing four layers. So, uh, you know, I had a little bit of ice on the front of my car in this morning at 5 a.m. But okay. You know, other than that, you know, you just got to put yourself in a mental state where you're just thinking it's warm and right. you know, get over it. That's good. So it's not gloating. Like if you were going to be like, oh, it's a high of 78 and it's perfect here today. I was going to be like, and this interview is over because now I'm just jealous. Yeah. Well, good thing it's this week because next week that might have been happening. So good, good thing. Good thing. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah. We dodged the bullet. Um, all right, Ronnie, let's dive in uh, to your uh, new position in the Arizona Diamondbacks organization here in 2023. You get to uh, step into the role of manager for the Hillsborough Hops in the High A Northwest League, which is uh, one of the coolest destinations in all of minor league bi- baseball, one of the greatest ballparks in minor league baseball. Um, and you are in a system right now that has so much talent uh, and is really building something in a very difficult division to build something in. Uh, when you were named to this post, I don't even know how you probably quantify the excitement and the and the energy that you feel going into this assignment now, but take us through what it was like. When did this conversation first start with the D-backs of, hey, we we think uh, the next step for you is a managerial spot. Take us through the how this all kind of came together. Yeah, so I was actually working this past season with the Fall League. So I was working with the Salt River Rafters and I got a call from Josh, I believe it was October, I want to say. And I wasn't expecting a call. I was actually uh, cleaning my apartment. All of a sudden I get a call from Josh Barfield. I'm like, uh-oh, go ahead and pick it up. Again, not expecting the call. He's like, hey, Ronnie, how's it going? I'm like, yeah, I'm just, you know, cleaning my blinds. No big deal. Um, and then he said, you know, we want to go ahead and talk to you about next season. I'm like, sick, sounds great. And he goes, so we'd really like for you to be up in Hillsborough. Oh, wait, uh, hold on a second. I'm getting another call. I'm sit there for about 30 seconds. I'm like, oh my gosh, what is it going to be? Gets on. Hey, Ronnie, still there? Yep. Uh, I'm still here. Just been pa- very patiently, but it felt like five minutes that I was waiting for and told me that I was going to go ahead and be the manager up in Hillsborough. And, um, you know, we had a great conversation afterwards of, um, you know, how they saw me and the value and whatnot that I'd be bringing up there as well as to the other staff who's going to be uh, blessing with, uh, blessing me up there. And, uh, so yeah, I was holding it in and I went to my wife and told her and she started crying and she was pretty excited. So she did the crying for the both of us. So I, I appreciate That's her. Always good. Yeah, it was great. And, and at, at what point did the history of that moment hit you? I mean, it's one thing to get your first managerial job in minor league baseball. That's yeah. a huge moment for any coach. Mm-hmm. Um, but to be the first woman to be a high, a skipper, that's a huge deal just for baseball in general. At what point did that hit you? Um, it hit me on Friday when they released it. I felt like the past couple of months I've been living like a little bit of a ninja or a spy, like incognito. No one knew what was going on, but me, as well as my family, I really didn't even tell a lot of my close friends or anything like that. And there had obviously been conversations throughout our organization about me taking the managerial role. So it was, I was living a little bit of bliss, you know, fishing, no big deal. And then, uh, you know, getting here for instructs a week and a half ago. And then obviously too, with the announcement and seeing all of the positive 
positive press from it, um, just from everybody, all the social media outlets and whatnot. And I'm not one to really go on social media, but I can tell you on Friday, it was a lot as my phone was blowing up. So I told my wife, I'm going to go ahead and put my phone down so we can actually have some a, a good dinner time rather than me just staring at it. But um, no, I didn't realize how, you know, I, I, I knew, but I didn't realize just how big until it was actually in my face. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what what does that mean to you now then that you've had almost a week? I mean, it's been five days since the announcement. Um, what does it mean to you now to have that reaction, especially social media being what it is? It, the outpouring of support was massive. Yeah. Um, no, it was great. And I, I think the, the the biggest thing, too, in regards of, you know, women are now getting the experiences that they need to fill the resumes to get to this role. And 10 years ago, it wasn't like that. So the fact that women are now becoming normal in these type of roles um, in regards of being an on-field coach or with Rachel Fulton with the Cubs, who's assistant hitting coordinator, or Veronica Alvarez, the coordinator of player development with the A's in Latin America. So just the fact to even be, in, in my opinion, at that level with those females it's a, it's a great honor. And also the fact that I get to call them um, really, really good and close friends of mine. Yeah. And let, let's go into your resume a little bit. Last year you worked with Amarillo. You were first base coach. That wasn't originally the plan. You were supposed to be in the Arizona complex league. You get the call after an injury to one of their coaches yeah. you move up to double a, what was that experience like and getting really entrenched with the D backs on the field with a full season club? Yeah, no, it was, uh, yeah, Josh called me in, showed me the x-ray of Colina's foot. I was like, oh, yeah, that does not look like a good time. Told me, hey, we'd really like for you to fill in. Um, and he was like, you know, you can go ahead and talk to your wife first. And in my mind, I'm like, well, I'm already going to say yes. But, yeah, I'll go ahead and go back and talk to her. And she was very supportive of it. She was actually working up in Hillsboro, which, again, I'll be at this uh, this upcoming season. So it was a little bit of an easy transition for me to go ahead and go. And um, working with Shane Lukes again, who I'd worked with the previous season up in Hillsboro with the pitching coach. So having some familiarity with him and a familiar face, as well as to some of the players that we had up there who I had seen the previous season, as well as also too during spring training. So, you know, it's all, it's, you know, you're fitting into a spot that you didn't necessarily know that you were going to be going into, but the, um, the, the, the openness, obviously of the staff that I'd already been working with as well as the players and, you know, just getting down and dirty with it. So no, it was great. Ronnie, you mentioned that your wife uh, already works up in Hillsboro, and that's pretty serendipitous for you to get your first uh, assignment up there and to be able to share that uh, with the most important person in your life. And to not only that, but, you know, get to continue doing this in an organization that you've been in for a few seasons now. Yeah. Um, it would be a cool opportunity if any other system came to you and said, hey, we want you as a manager. Come on over here. But to share this with the D-backs family yeah. uh, over those first few years, getting into the day-to-day um, on-field stuff with a team, what was it like last year, especially having had a base of already knowing some of those guys from earlier mm-hmm. in their careers to be around them on a daily basis, get a chance to work with them, form those on-field relationships. What was that like? Um, you know, just being able to make this happen for a full season in double a. Yeah. Um, it just kind of felt normal. You know, obviously before this, I was coaching softball either, you know, at Liberty university as a GA coach and also to a university of Massachusetts Amherst. So, you know, it's just having the same conversations. And I mean, the reason why I got into coaching is because I I got so much out of this game 
from the game itself, as well as also to the people to help me become the person and coach that I am today. So to be able to give back to these guys and, you know, help them reach their dreams and, um, you know, how they wanted to be a big leaguer growing up. So it was, it's, it's great just to be able to help them there. And also too just to see it click for them when they do get something, uh, to see it, you know, work in the cage or work when we're doing early worker grunt work. And then they go out in the game and they do it and just to see that smile on their face. It's, it's really great to see that. I have to ask you one thing, uh, which is as a manager, mm-hmm. you get tasks sometimes with, you know, infield, outfield, all that stuff. And the toughest thing is hitting that straight up fungo pop-up for a catcher <laughs> to try to catch during the end of infield, outfield. Mm-hmm. What's your, how, how would you grade yourself? And I've, I've watched like managers and coaches do that forever and think if you gave me a thousand chances to hit a straight up pop-up for a catcher to make a play on, I would succeed 0% of the time. What's your, what's your grade for yourself on that? Yeah. You know, the grade is, you know, normally 20 to 80 when you're scouting, right. I'm probably at a 19. So that's something that I definitely <laughs> need to practice on. Um, I don't know if they even can go negatives, but that's probably where I'm living at about right right now. You know, it's all about vulnerability. You know, it, it is, I'm not the greatest at it, but you know, I'm, I am a very good fungo hitter. I will give kudos to myself. I do throw a mean BP. Um, but that is something that, um, I definitely need to get better at before I showcase it. So I appreciate you bringing that to light for me. So really thank you for that. Very glad we could expose the yeah, one poor fine. area of the scouting report. Yeah. It's always, it's always what we try to do. I'm doing the, like Rodney Dangerfield collar pull right now. Um, as, as far as managerial, um, tactics go managerial identity managerial strategy it's so different obviously being a manager from being a a coach you know whether it's a a pitching coach or hitting coach or whatever who are some of your influences you know learning how to manage a bullpen it's so different nowadays of course in terms of pitch counts and rest days and everything else than it would have been if you were taking this job on you know 20 years ago or something like that Mm -hmm. but that stuff lineup construction how much of that did you get to learn last year in Amarillo and how much is just kind of osmosis through not only your life in softball, but baseball as well. Um, how, how have those things come along for you and your identity as a manager? Yeah, no, for sure. Um, being in Amarillo last season, uh, being with Sean Roof, and then also too, obviously with Shane and hearing their discussions in the dugout, what they do prepping the game of, Hey, if, if this happens, you know, if we're up to, if we're down to, who are we putting in? Um, if this happens, what would be a really good option here? And then obviously too, with all the data that we have in regards of, um, you know, of pitchers, hitters and all that. It's, it was great to see them work and to see kind of a filtering too. You know, there's going to be times where you butt heads, but as long as you're passionate and you have that backing up, you know, then you're going to go ahead and make the decision that you feel is right. So to be able to see that um, live in action and then also too just the, the conversations off the field about it. And even today, you know, um, we had one of our, he's going to be a fourth coach in Visalia. He sent me a bunch of stuff that he had used in the past and what the D-backs have used and, you know, get myself familiarized with that aspect. And, you know, again, to your point, you can only do so much prepping until, I don't know if I can say this, but until you're literally in the So, you know, it's just getting that experience. Like you only get experience sometimes of when you're actually doing it. So I'm going to do everything that I can beforehand to prep myself, to put myself in the best situation. And then from there, it's just gaining the experience and then having those conversations after the fact. Yeah. And amongst the things you can look forward to, like, what are you most excited about, about like you are going to walk in opening day with the hops. It is your clubhouse to run. What are you most excited about with that experience? Um, I'm just excited to share that with the guys. You know, I know that 
obviously right now we're in instructs. We're going to be here for early camp and then also too with spring training and building those relationships with those guys and um, just being being there for an opening day with them. And I know it's going to be me leading the ship, but there's also a lot of other leaders who are going to be on our staff as well as also two players. So and also too just to be doing it in Hillsboro because again, with my first year being there with how open they were with everything and how great the GM is, how great the owners are, the staff on and off the field. It's just it's a little bit of a, a full circle moment for me. So the fact that I am able to do it there for such great people as well as too with the for the Diamondbacks, you know, talking what um, bringing back to what you're saying, Tyler, to be able to start my manager managerial career with the Diamondbacks who gave me my first opportunity in pro ball. So, and I give kudos to Corey Swope, who's the first guy to hire me to bring me in. And also to Josh Barfield and everybody else here who has given me so much and educated me. Um, it's, it's great to be able to do this for them and shine a light on how great our system is. Yeah. And, and kind of pivoting off of that. I mean, what do you feel like about the Arizona developmental pipeline? Cause right now so many t- people talk about the Corbin Carroll's, the Drew Joneses that they just brought in Jordan Lawler's Brandon Fox, these really good prospects that they've developed in recent years. And it feels like D-backs are going to make a corner, but what is it about either your coaching strategy or developmental strategy that plugs in really well with this Arizona pipeline? Yeah, no, I think, again, at the end of the day, everyone wants to know that they're cared, cared about and thought about and loved. And when when you show them too that I just like how coaches cared about me, like I'm going to care about you as a person. You know, there are going to be days where you're up and there's going to be days where you're down. Um, I don't want them to necessarily ride the waves. I just want them to float on the waves. Oh, we're here at this high moment. It's awesome to be here. And there's going to be times where it comes down and you're like, all right, here I am. So it's just being able to have those conversations and know that, you know, they're already hard on themselves. And this game is a huge game of failure, but for them to know that we're supporting them and that we are wanting them to succeed. And even on those little things of the conversation physically or mentally, you know, we're, we're here for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and Tyler asked you before about your ability to hit the ball straight in the air. I'm going to allow you to stun on yourself a little bit more. Just talk about your, your career, your playing career. You played at USF mm-hmm. obviously, and then you pivoted to coaching after that, but you helped win a baseball competition at the Toronto Pan Am games. I mean, what who were you as a player and how does that affect who you are as a coach yeah it was uh it was a pretty sick pretty sick moment for sure um you know I remember hearing my name get called out and we were sitting in the hotel after the trials and just to hear my name Gajana come out um you know obviously uh, at the time that was 2015 I can't remember how old I was I think I was 21 or 29 I think I was 21 at the time and to be able to call my parents and tell them that I get to represent the United States of America um, and be there with all of the great uh, other great female athletes that I was with it was a it was a huge honor and for me you know playing softball. There was one game at USF where I played short, I played second and I played third. So it's more of a, more of a utility. It was really big in the defense. Um, I love the, the mental side of the preparation for defense. I know a lot of, a lot of stuff goes in offense mentally prepared, but defense there, there's a lot of things that you can go ahead and do. Um, and so with, with that style of being a utility, seeing it from the different sides and whatnot, um, you know, it's just kind of about grinding it out and wherever you're at, just ball out. Ronnie, this is uh, a time in the baseball world where, um, and I'm going to kind of nerd out a little bit because one thing that I love over the time that I've been able to broadcast things internationally is women's baseball and the women's baseball world cup. And there has been so much, even just over the last two years, not to mention five years or 10 years, uh, there's been so much visibility 
uh, given now to not just women in coaching and, and women in front of office roles, but also women playing the game and doing it at a really high level. What's kind of the next step for that? We're, we're finally back after the pandemic year into the next rotation for the Women's Baseball World Cup. USA Baseball play in a qualifier later this year. There will be a World Cup in 2024 on the women's side. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, the amount of talent that you played with and players who have been around who have been legendary uh, in their time in women's baseball, Malika Underwood and, yeah. uh, you know, um, the the players like Isla Borders who really established kind of the first um, – hammer in the wall of trying to break through and play this game at a high level. Um, women's baseball, there's a very bright future for what is kind of that next step and how do you want to see that evolve? We know how successful softball is, um, mm-hmm. but I don't think that there are, uh, there's a world that exists where both of those things can't be tremendously successful. What's the next stage for, for those teammates that you had in 2015 and for the continued growth of women's baseball? Yeah, I mean, honestly, it comes down to money and it comes down to, like you said, you know, people are starting to see more and more of it and understanding that there is value and there is presence for women to be in the game. So um, I think the biggest thing, again, is just money, showing the value of it. And also, too, I mean, we had a woman, Olivia Pichardo, who's now at yeah. Brown and she's playing and she's doing a great job. So it's first division one player uh, in history, first woman to play D one baseball. She was added for that 2023 roster at Brown. Exactly. And again, I don't know if I can say this, but she's a badass and you know what she balls out and to be able to see her be just so successful at that. And so I think just even with her success so far, people saying that like, wow, she can hang and she can compete and she's good. So the fact that now people are seeing that, then I think also to fathers and mothers who rather than, because again, growing up, I grew up playing baseball and then, you know, someone told my dad, Hey, girls don't play baseball. So then he put me in softball. But now the fact that there are people like Olivia Pichardo, they can say, no, girls can play baseball. So you know what, you know, little Jenny, if you want to stay in baseball, you stay in baseball. So I think it's just seeing that out and out and about in the world and then saying being like yeah okay you go ahead and stick with this so this is what you want then go out go ahead and go out and get it I remember um, talking with Megan Baltzell a few years ago who was on USA Baseball rosters for a couple of World Cups, and she said the same thing of, like, softball wasn't my first love. Baseball has always been my first love. And being forced into that avenue, I just wasn't really that happy with it and was still very successful with it. But the way somebody on the the women's national team compared it to me is it's essentially like saying tennis and ping pong are the same sport. I've said that before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there are similar elements, but it's not the same sport at all. Yeah. Yeah. to be now one of the people who increases that visibility, mm-hmm. is that something that you kind of want to help with with the construction of that next chapter? I know every Women's World Cup that I've worked, there's always that conversation of, we know how talented we are, we know how good we are, but we also aren't practicing 40 weeks out of the year like right. Japan's national team does. Mm-hmm. We don't get those same opportunities. Do you want to help sort of enhance that? In addition to what you're going to be doing on the professional side, that's something else that's potentially a cool opportunity. Is that something that's in your sights too? Yeah, no, um, Veronica Alvarez, who's the manager of the women's national team, and then also, too, now the coordinator of player development in Latin America for the A's, her and I are actually very, very uh, good friends. I was actually just talking to her this morning about her dog. But, um, yeah, no, I think it's just, you know, now that we're now that we're seeing, again, the, the value and the presence and kind of the badassery that there is in the sport with women, um, you know, it's just, it's again, it's just getting that money. It's, it's just someone seeing – 
how great it can be and believing in it and, and taking that chance, just like how there's so many women now who are also too like taking that chance at the next job of being in pro baseball. You know, I could have easily stayed in the softball realm, but I thought, you know what, I want to go ahead and give this a go. And even if it doesn't work out, I'm seeing how the, the pros are running it. So the fact of taking that chance, that's what someone's going to have to do for women base for women's baseball. And then again, they are going to go ahead and they'll see the product and they'll be like, all right, let's go ahead and do it. All right, Ronnie, I got to ask you one question just in terms of your baseball love. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to ask you your favorite player of all time and your favorite teammate of all time. Because whenever I get a question of like, oh, who's your favorite player? Who's your favorite player that you've broadcasted for? I always say favorite player of all time is Larry Walker. Mm-hmm. My favorite player I've ever broadcasted for is Jade Gortares of the U.S. Oh, all right. Yeah, my ex love because every time I watch her, I'm like, oh, that's what people felt like when they watch like Derek Jeter at 18. Yeah, she's like smooth. just she's so smooth. smooth and a yes. level of cool that I could never aspire to attain. So your favorite player of all time, yeah. like when you were a kid uh, and your favorite teammate. Yeah. So um, my favorite player growing up was Sammy Sosa. Um, I actually growing up, um, my mom, for some reason had my bedroom purple, which is not really a great color for me. (laughs) And I believe they said, if I got straight A's, I can go ahead and paint my room, whatever color, if I got all straight A's. So I said, okay, got straight A's and I painted it, uh, cubbies blue and red and my mom absolutely hated it. So, um, but yeah, he, and then even so back in the day was the scholastic book fair and there was, they had all the different posters of all the different athletes and, um, you know, there was, I was collecting them. I had a rod, I had Barry Bonds, there was the same Sosa one I really, really wanted. And my mom would not give me the $5 to get it. And I just absolutely <laughs> broke my heart. And, uh, there was one day that I was playing somewhere downstairs, ball rolled underneath. And I saw the Sammy Sosa poster. I was like, Oh my gosh, I cannot believe it. So, um, yeah, Sammy Sosa was my favorite player growing up. He was my first heartbreak as well. Um, and then my favorite player that I've played with, or against or against, I want to, I want to make it that, cause I don't want to make it seem like you're just playing favorites with a team. Yeah, no, no, no. I think somebody whose um, game you admire or somebody you just love learning from or something like that. I mean, for, I think playing against, I really enjoyed, um, playing against Stacy Piagno and she actually played for the Sonoma Stomp, uh, Stompers a couple of years back. Yeah. Um, she was just, she was great on the mound. So I just loved watching her work. And also too, it made my job a little bit easier because she was pretty good at it. Um, but now also too, with the conversations with Veronica Alvarez, um, and just the knowledge that she brings from her playing days, then also too being in baseball for so long now, uh, it's great to have those conversations and for us to look back kind of on the days that we, uh, we did play with each other. All right, Ronnie, we'll, we'll end on these two, just focus on the the day job that you have coming up in 2023. I know you guys, like you said, you're, you've started Instructs a little. We're not quite yet at full spring training. Nobody knows exactly who's going to be on the Hops roster. But when you look forward to this year, who are you excited to potentially work with? Like I look at Melendez, who was yeah. a big pick last year, um, such a performer at, at Texas in college. Seems like he could be a, a, an option for high A. But who are you looking at maybe you know managing it? Um, yeah, again, like you said, I kind of have no idea who's going to be on our opening day roster, but, you know, obviously getting, getting my hands on, uh, Melendez and then also too, with Drew Jones, it's, it's going to be exciting to see in regards of all the hype that is behind them. The hype is definitely well-deserved and I'm excited to see what they do with it and just to see how they're grinding in and out. Even so with these past couple of days with Melendez being here with instructs, just seeing how he is getting better defensively. So it's going to be, and then also too, 
just with our whole entire staff up there. Um, I know our pitching coach, Gabby, was talking about how great our bullpen is going to be this year. So just to be able, I haven't had too many eyes on the bullpen yet because um, we're pretty split up here in Instructs, but just all the great things that he's been saying. And then also to, um, you know, just seeing the infielder. So no, I think it's going to be, it's going to be a great year. I've had a, I had one of our uh, guys come up to me today, Bain, who finished up in AAA, one of our pitchers saying, you know, how excited he is uh, for us to be up there and how many wins we're going to be getting. So it's, pr it's pretty cool to um, have someone like him, you know, who we had last year in Amarillo, this is the success that he's had and already kind of a little bit of the hype from the players themselves in regards of who's going to be there as well as the staff. All right, cool. We'll definitely circle that bullpen. Uh, and, and also kind of pivoting off that, you know, you look at like, Visalia, and that's where guys are just getting their full season careers going. And Amarillo, where you were last year, that's where it really feels like guys are close. High A is that middle ground. Mm -hmm. How do you kind of view coaching at that level and what that level means? Yeah, I think it's it's a little bit of that. It's a little bit of that breaking point, and especially to um, a lot of our hitters like to call the stadium where uh, hitters go to die. So if you can, I think too, it's it's a little bit more of that. Um, I think in Hillsborough, it's a little bit more of a mental game, especially too, when it comes to, when it comes to hitting. So being able to bridge that gap between, yeah, they're getting their first year or they're, um, you know, being in Visalia for that first season and then coming up to Hillsborough and then seeing the shining lights at Amarillo where you can hit it, you know, exit VL 86 and hit a pop-up and it goes out. So I think it's, you know, it's, it's going to be more of a mental challenge for them, but you know what, I'd, I'd much rather have that there and, and learn early than having to learn that up in AAA. So I think they might not, they might not necessarily see it as a benefit, but um, it's definitely going to help them physically, but majority of the time mentally. All right. Well, we'll end on this one. You know, I was just looking at the schedule. You guys open April 6th at Tri-City at 630 Pacific time start. Uh, as you're filling out that lineup for that first game, and again, we don't know who's going to lead off and who's going to yeah. bat second quite yet, but as you look forward to that, what do you think is going to be running through your head? Holy <laughs> <laughs> Um no, Understandable. I think, <laughs> yeah. no, um, you know, I'm going to think about it. I just, for, for me, for, for this gig and, um, you know, I'm, you're, you're a product of your environment. And I think that it goes obviously for every single human being on this planet that you're a product of your environment. So the fact of, it's not just me writing the lineup, it's my pitching coach. It's my fourth coach. It's my hitting coach. It's, um, it's Josh Barfield, it's Corey Swope, it's Shane Lukes, it's, it's my wife, it's all of my friends. So I think that it's, yes, I might be the one who's physically doing all the writing out, but there's a lot of things that had to go into it, um, from everybody who I've come into contact with. So I think it's going to be, it's going to be a big moment for me. And I hope it's also a big moment for everyone who's, who's helped me and helped everybody on our staff. All right, Ronnie, last one, uh, and we're going to wrap it up. By the way, uh, just hearing that Josh Barfield is old enough to be a farm director makes me ancient. I'm like, oh, I know, he's the fun. He's like a 25-year-old prospect. He's, and now I feel uh, very old. But uh, we've had some rule changes, obviously, in minor league baseball and yep. recent season stuff that's going to the big league level. Um, final point, um, how much do you think that's um, – help to change the game in the minor leagues. Obviously things have been really successful. They moved up 
to the big league level, but being a manager, having seen the last couple of seasons, the larger bases, the shift restrictions, automatic balls and strikes uh, at certain leagues and certain levels, um, the pitch timer, all of that. Uh, what do you feel like that has done? And especially being somebody now who can kind of implement those things as, mm-hmm. hey, we're a, a foot closer to, uh, you know, to having a stolen base here, all this yeah. type of stuff. How much has that changed, um, you know, the way the game has been played at the minors and what people can look forward to now at the big league level? Yeah, no. Um, during the fall league, some of the stadiums had the big bags. And then when we would play here at Salt River, they had the little bags. So I was like, wow, that's like a great, great Dane bed to like a Chihuahua bed. So yeah, it's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty big difference. So that's a um, really good description, by the it's, way, it's, that's yeah, how I'm going to try to explain that to people from now It's on. crazy. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, no, I think just to see how I think in the beginning, it was kind of a little bit of a um, heads or tails in regards of the pitch clock, but we've seen such a positive uh, take on it from pitchers themselves, from the hitters, as well as to people who are engaging in the game. And, you know, there's, there's some, there was one game that was a part of that was almost four hours long and there weren't any people there. And, you know, you're playing this game, you're obviously playing it for yourself. You're playing it for the team that you represent, um, but you're also playing it for the fans. So for, especially for that pitch clock, allowing those fans to stay there, because again, there are times in the game that you are playing off of the fans in regards of how engaged they are. So to be able to keep fans there a little bit longer, I think it's definitely going to be an advantage, but, um, but yeah, so that's my take on it. Well, it's all coming up in 2023. The manager of the Hillsborough Hops in the High A Northwest League, Ronnie Gajonic, the first woman to get that post uh, in High A and uh, the first of many, many more to come. Ronnie, thanks so much for all the time today. Uh, next week, enjoy the weather, but don't tell us about it because we're, we're going to be miserable. <laughs> Sound, sounds good. Sounds good. Thanks, Appreciate Ronnie. You. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Well, continuing to roll along on this week's episode of the show before the show, we are excited to talk with your good pal and ours, Benjamin Hill. Uh, ben, it's it's good to see you. What's going on? Yeah, good to see you guys as well. Even though I can't actually see you. That right is true. Because- we each cut our video oh. in an attempt to save bandwidth, and now I feel bad, and so I just popped back on. And so did uh, now you came back in. It's just like we're all in the same room together. Now I feel whole. But yeah, um, recording on a Wednesday. I, I spend most days in the office, but working from home today. And um, yeah, we're doing our thing remotely, as one does in this uh, in this era of existence. This wild modern world of ours. Um, which is where we find ourselves today talking about uh, some fun topics with Ben Hill, as we always do. And we got to kick things off with a story from the cradle of minor league baseball, North Carolina uh, with the Hickory Crawdads who are uh, unveiling an alternate identity in 2023, uh, which is part of the Hickory Crawdads theme night collection. And it will pertain to a series in August, Thursday, August 17th through Saturday, August 19th against Rome in Hickory. Uh, Ben, this is 
this is a very unique alternate identity for for several reasons but tell us about it and then we're going to pepper you with questions yeah and i'm no expert we can all talk it out together but this was just announced yesterday tyler as you had as you said uh three games in august the hickory crawdads will play as the hickory dickory docks which just immediately captures your attention the hickory dickory docks of course a reference to the old uh, nursery rhyme hickory dickory dock the mouse ran up the clock uh, before we went on air, Tyler asked the question, wait, does that rhyme, that nursery rhyme, have anything to do with Hickory, North Carolina? And I just said, oh, no, of course not. And then I was correct, but I just said that without really knowing. And we all know, you know, that's that's a uh, not a good way to go about life, you know, what they say about those who assume. So I did do a mild amount of research, and it looks like Hickory Dickory Dock, the nursery rhyme, the mouse ran up the clock, you know. I found that uh, the earliest recorded version of this rhyme was in Tommy Thumb's Pretty Songbook in about 1744. So, 1744. Holy cow! Uh, and then who knows how long it existed before it was published in any form? It's just you know something that was uh, you know passed on. And you know, of course, there were variations on the opening lines. Um, the one in 1744 says "Hickory Dickory." Well. Whatever. It spells the words differently. I don't know how they were supposed to be pronounced. It was later Dickory Dickory Dock. Um, you know, so there's been different variations of it. So it has nothing to do with Hickory, North Carolina. But the version that has been canon, at least in the United States, for as long as we all can remember, is Hickory Dickory Dock. And uh, so the crawdads just said, you know what, we're going to be the Dickory Docks. And the logo for these, uh, the color scheme is, I would even call it kind of a throwback, you know, San Diego Padre, Padres type vibe even though the crawdads are not a San Diego affiliate, but you got the brown and that mustard yellow and um, the Hickory Dickory Dock jerseys had, um, you know, kind of clock gears on the sleeves and yellow against a brown base. And uh, the hat, as one would expect when you're playing as the Dickory Docks, it literally depicts a mouse running up the clock. The mouse is holding a baseball bat, the clock. Now, what do you call it in a clock? The, the circular thing underneath the clock that ticks back and forth to count the seconds is there there has to be a terminology it's uh, got to be a pendulum right yeah a pendulum and let's call it that but the pendulum is a baseball and the clock is kind of side-eyeing the mouse just like yo what are you doing running up (laughs) running up me you know i I didn't give you permission for this the mouse Uh, is very big compared to the clock by the way especially very angry and very angry uh the mouse is angry the clock is the clock looks more irritated than it looks angry um, but like, if this is a grandfather clock and that mouse is to scale, that means that mouse is like at least four feet long. Which yeah, I don't maybe, know, maybe in 1744, it, it could have been conceivable. I don't know about in, in Hickory, but you know, this is, it's a, it's a very large mouse. Uh, but I do envision this more as a, you know, perhaps a mantle clock as, as opposed to a grandfather clock. That um, makes more sense. But, but you're right, Tyler, we we were left with no clues over how tall either clock or mouse is. So you can just let your imagination run wild. Uh, but the mouse is roughly as tall as the clock and the clock is understandably peeved at this mouse running up it. Anyway, it's a really creative um, identity. Uh, three nights in August might have to talk to uh, someone with the crawdads down the line and get more on this story. It certainly got a good reaction on social media yesterday. Uh, I am definitely a fan of it because it's just, um, you know, as, as I've said in, in previous podcasts, you know, it's been a little harder to come by 
just these kind of minor league promos that are just like, why not? And I feel like this is very much a why not minor league promo. Um, we play in Hickory. What's the most uh, you know common association in, of, with the word Hickory and the English language? Um, you know, Hickory Dickory Docks. So let's be the Dickory Docks. <laughs> and it's just such a, a ridiculous uh, name for a team. And of course, we'll, the clock is set to 828 on the cap logo. And that is Hickory's area code. So you do have, even though the nursery rhyme has nothing specific to do with Hickory, North Carolina, they gave it that little local Easter egg with the clock reading 828, as long as you know how to tell time uh, on an old fashioned clock, which uh, I'm told not many people do nowadays, but that's 828. Yeah. And we were joking about this before, but we should also be clear, like games aren't starting at 828, right? Like that's, they're not going to be starting an hour and a half later than usual. Uh, during that time, as much as I would like that. Um, also, if there's any way we could ensure it, like no delay, no rain in the Hickory area, that at that time, everything needs to start exactly on time. And then the Dickory docks, I feel like if there were ever a series that could not afford to delay, it's this one. Yeah, agreed. Got to start on time when you're representing the clocks. Uh, so this one's exciting. And uh, I think the, this logo with the color scheme, and the unique story behind it uh, has and will continue to get attention, you know, uh, you know, nationwide as opposed to just being a very specific local thing. I do like your description too that it's become a little bit more challenging for us to find some of those just random like why not minor league baseball promos, and this is very much one of them. Uh, there is also a, a cool element. You may have mentioned this, but the sleeves of the jersey have like clock gears uh, as the the decorative elements on the the sleeves, so it's a very inventive. Uh, promotional idea for the Hickory Dickory Docks, known to you as the Hickory Crawdads, except for August 17th to the 19th of this 2023 season. Um, then ballpark guides continue to roll out on the site. I know uh, Steph Sheehan has been crushing some ballpark guides as of late. You continuing, as always, to do your fantastic ballpark guide work. Where have you been touring through in a virtual sense on the minor league landscape lately? Yeah, minor league ballpark guides. We've talked about them a lot over the last, I don't even know how long, couple of years now uh, here on the podcast. And uh, we're, we're in the home stretch. Uh, we have 119 of them to do and are, are close to 100 right now. And uh, a lot of new ones to read. Right now, they're all accumulated on uh, MILB.com slash fan slash ballpark dash guide. Um, you know, got, got a lot of new ones to check out, uh, check, you know, minor league baseball social as well you know to see the latest ones twitter at milb uh etc cetera, etc cetera. but tyler as you mentioned uh our colleague steph sheehan has uh come in with uh her first two ballpark guides of the project and she has taken us to mgm park home of the biloxi shuckers as well as bay care ballpark the spring training home of the phillies and uh home of the clearwater threshers of the florida state league meanwhile michael avalone uh, has made his uh, ballpark guide debut with the uh, Memphis Redburns, Redbirds AutoZone Stadium. And in particular, I've been on a little uh, Midwest kick with the ballpark guides. I've done them for Cedar Rapids Colonels Veterans Memorial Stadium, uh, Dozer Park, home of the Peoria Chiefs, and Principal Park, home of the Iowa Cubs. And a funny thing about all three of those teams, Peoria Chiefs, Iowa Cubs, Cedar Rapids Colonels is they all have uh, pork tenderloins at the concession stand. And, you know, you know, you're in the Midwest when you go to a minor league ballpark and it has pork tenderloins. Uh, we've talked about them on the podcast before. Um, Pure Chiefs actually debuted a tenderloins alternate identity last year. 
they hadn't even sold tenderloins at the ballpark until they debuted that alternate identity. But, uh, you know, if you're not familiar with the pork tenderloin, the they're usually they're not always fried, but they're usually uh, breaded and fried. Sometimes they're grilled. But the meat on top of the bun is is comical, it is comical. It's it's as if a um, it's, it's as if the, the largest man in the world was winning, a wearing a little cap made for a baby. You know, the. Uh, <laughs> it's that old Mitch Hedberg bit about New York deli sandwiches where he calls them like a cow with a cracker on either side. That's a yeah. tenderloin sandwich. Precisely. Uh, so they're not particularly vertical. They are just these horizontal sandwiches where uh, the bun cannot contain this sprawling uh, piece of pork tenderloin. But anyway, it's been nice to be, uh, you know, at least spiritually traveling to the Midwest and writing those ballpark guides. Um, you know, we could go on and on about all these different teams that we've mentioned so far. Uh, I think one interesting thing that I that I learned in writing these ballpark guides is uh, Principal Park, home of the Iowa Cubs. Um, you know, certainly one of the best ballpark views in the minor leagues. You have downtown Des Moines in the left field corner, and you have the confluence of uh, uh, two rivers at the ballpark. And geez, I'm blanking on the names of those rivers. I just wrote the ballpark guide. But you've got rivers, you've got downtown view. And just way beyond center field, you have the Iowa State Capitol building uh, gleaming in the distance. And that was like always a really cool part of the principal park ballpark um, view was the Iowa State Capitol building with this, uh, you know, this spire topped uh, dome in the background. But, you know, hitters had complained for years that especially on sunny days, uh, the glare from the dome was affecting their view. And as part of some recent renovations at principal park, they have created a new ballpark, uh, a new uh, batter's eye that significantly reduces um, the visibility of the dome, the Capitol Dome in the ballpark. So from a ballpark view perspective, that's not good. From a hitter perspective, it's a good thing. But now if you really want to see the um, state Capitol Dome when you're at an Iowa Cubs game, you have to be sitting in the uh, 10th row or above to take in that view otherwise you're going to be just like the batters themselves you're going to have that view greatly obscured by the batter's eye all right ben well now it's going to be a pop quiz on what these two rivers are because i just looked them up one is a city name and one is an animal name what are they yeah one's raccoon river one's raccoon river raccoon it's not the des moines river is it? it is the des moines river yes ah I would not have gotten either of those. See, you you knew it deep in your heart. You just needed a little. I did, and I just wrote the ballpark guide. Oh, it was course. right there. But, uh, yeah, yeah. They uh, their confluence is visible from the ballpark, and you have one of the rivers uh, running right behind the ballpark, the other down the first base side. I believe it's the raccoon raccoon river on the first base side, and Des Moines running past the outfield, and they have their uh, little confluence there. But, but between the rivers, the downtown views, the state capitol building. Uh, definitely a cool spot to see a game and get a pork tenderloin while you're at it uh, there in Des Moines or really also in Cedar Rapids or in Peoria. Go to the Midwest if you want some uh, pork tenderloin and read these ballpark guides to uh, learn about the teams, the ballparks and uh, other things to do in the area. Well, Ben, you mentioned good views you know, from the ballpark and how now that might be a little bit obscured at principal park but obviously there are good views everywhere in minor league baseball you threw this out in your latest newsletter uh asking people for their favorite views or their favorite seats in minor league baseball and it, it was such a good thing to see both in the newsletter and just on social media the way people were were responding to that um you know instantly my mind flooded to a bunch of things like 
nothing beats the view on Coney Island when like the sun's going down and you see the cyclone in, in the background and all the roller coasters and the beach and the, the waves rolling in. But like that, that's home for me. But also, you know, I thought back to like my favorite view ever was last year going with my, my dad and my nephew to a game and just sitting behind them and seeing my nephew really take it in like that. It's such a wide topic and, and invites so many different answers that you got a lot of. So as you were asking people this question, what were some of your favorite answers? Yeah. And, and the way this was phrased, this was actually a suggestion from one of my newsletter readers uh, to ask this question. And I, I like the way it's phrased because it's what's your favorite seat or view. So kind of like you just did, Sam, you could, answer it from just the perspective of, wow, I'm in Salt Lake and I see the mountains and that's an amazing view. But you could also answer it from a personal perspective in terms of maybe who you were at the game with or what you liked very specifically, you know, about a seat, not not so much in the overarching view of downtown or nature or anything, but just what it revealed about the field or how you could interact with players or whatnot. So, um, yeah, I've been writing the newsletter for a better part of a year and this was got more responses to this question than any others that that I've asked and uh, a great corresponding Twitter thread as well. Uh, last week's newsletter that comes out every Thursday was dedicated to this this week's, uh, which will be out um, you know before this podcast even is released will be part two in the Ben's Biz Beat newsletter. Um, so got a lot of lot of great interesting responses. Um, you know, one person wrote um, wrote in about Rickwood Field. Um, you know, where the in Birmingham, where there was a Rickwood Classic every year. The Birmingham Barons played there between 1910 and 1986, and the Rickwood Classic took place between 1996 and 2019, playing in a minor league game. Um, you know, at this beautiful old ballpark. And and one of the readers, Mikel Petty, um, sent me a picture when he was at the Rickwood Classic and. He just said the batter, Birmingham shortstop Danny Mendick, is about to hit a double into the left field corner. The seat location is nothing special. He's down the first baseline. So why is this my favorite view, he asks? Look closely. There's no obscuring netting and no distracting electronic scoreboard, just old school time machine baseball. So, you know, you can kind of filter your answers through that kind of thing of um, of a view that makes you feel like you're another place, you know, never different place or time. Uh, another William Tusius said the view from the home run porch section at Las Vegas ballpark and sent in a beautiful photo um, of looking from the outfield at uh, towards home plate at, at Las Vegas ballpark with that press box in the shape of kind of, a, you know, the cockpit of a plane. You know, that's a, another beautiful, a, another beautiful view. Sam, you mentioned, you know, the New York City views, uh, you know, Brooklyn Cyclones, uh, you know, got responses related to the Staten Island Yankees, how you can see the, um, you know, the Statue of Liberty and uh, the ferry and the New York City skyline, you know, from that ballpark in Staten Island. And uh, so, you know, I could go on and on and on. And uh, in the newsletter, I kind of do uh, both this week and last and on Twitter. Um, but it's a fun question. And if uh, you know you want to get in touch and, um, you know, keep the conversation going, you know, please do so. Twitter at Ben's Biz. Email me, Benjamin.Hill at MLB.com. And then we, of course, had the podcast address, too. If maybe we can, uh, you know, hit this topic on the air in the future, if people have things they want to share. And that's what podcast at. M. I. I. I was almost forgetting the I podcast at M. I. L. B. Dot com. But I think one of the reasons I like this topic so much is because it's not just me like, oh, I'm the guy. I've been to a lot of ballparks. Here's my favorite views. I like hearing from other people. And the different ways you can interpret this question and the way you learn about different kinds of fans in terms of what they prioritize or what has really made the biggest impact on them. 
uh, at the ballpark. Benjamin Hill is on Twitter at Ben's Biz. He's on Instagram at the Ben's Biz. You can check out all the stuff, MILB.com slash fans slash Ben's Biz and uh, read all of it. Ben, thanks, man. Thanks, guys. Great talking to you. And I'm sure I will talk to you again. I think you will. We'll do it soon. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story. And one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data from Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware. Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. interrupt this podcast to bring you another thrilling edition of Ghosts of the Miners. Now, here's your correspondent and host, Joshua Jackson. Welcome back to Ghosts of the Miners, in which all of you out there in radio land must identify the legitimate historical ball club hiding amidst the fraudulent pair. One really stood out in its day. The others never existed, no how, no way. In the last segment, I asked you which of the following minor league baseball teams did at one time play ball. A, the Grays Harbor Loggers. B, the Vermilion Miners. C, the Orange Grovemen. It's a sunny day for you if you picked A, the Grays Harbor Loggers. Would have been your favorite team were you a baseball fan in Aberdeen, Washington in the late 1970s, and who briefly featured a Paul Bunyan sized talent from the world of comedy. Grays Harbor County, of which Aberdeen is the biggest city, takes its name from a giant bay christened after 18th century fur trader Robert Gray. But it wasn't that long after Gray went white when timber took over becoming such a big industry that by the end of 1926, Grays Harbor set a long-standing record by exporting 1.4 billion MBF, meaning 1,000 board feet, of lumber. By the middle 1970s, it was an area pining for baseball. <laughs> Aberdeen hadn't had a pro team since the 1918 Aberdeen Black Cats meowed. But in the two decades prior to that, it was a hotbed featuring a number of clubs, including the 1906 Grays Harbor Lumbermen. 
After a barren period of more than a half century, new growth took hold when the Class A short season Northwest League's Tri-City Ports of Kennewick, Washington, just across the Columbia River from today's Tri-City Dust Devils in Pasco, Washington, failed to field the team for 1975 and were thus uprooted and replanted in Aberdeen for 76, holding the Ports moniker for that season. Isn't Grays Harbor Ports redundant? asked the Tri-City Herald that March, and for the following season, the Ports name shipped out and the loggers made camp. Although they competed during an era when clear-cut affiliation agreements had become the norm, the Loggers had no big league organization to stump for them, playing as a co-op club in 77 and altogether independent in 78. In that first season, the Loggers' Juan Delgado swung a mighty stick, swatting 16 homers to tie for the league lead with Mariners up-and-comer Dave Henderson. Meanwhile, Ozzie Smith wowed for the Walla Walla Padres. In 78, without any players from any farm system on the squad, Grays Harbor stormed its way to a title, going 47-23 for the best record in the league and winning the playoffs against the Eugene Emeralds after rain and wet grounds canceled every game besides the opener. Grays Harbor took an affiliation with the Mets in 79 and played under its parent club's name, then played another independent year as the Loggers in 80 before being chopped out of the circuit for 81 for want of an affiliation. But that 78 club went down in history not only for its title but for its star power, as in late July, Bill Murray, friend of our Ben Hill and erstwhile Saturday Night Live cast member. You know, whenever I tune into Twitter, I tune into Ben Hill's Twitter account. Played two games for the Loggers in a publicity stunt that doubled as a sketch for a The Things We Did Last Summer episode of SNL. Murray logged the hit over two plate appearances, and although their lack of an affiliation eventually exiled Grays Harbor from the minors, the sketch that immortalized them on the small screen would have been much less likely if not for Grays Harbor's independent spirit. And that's how the loggers were felled. Now, on to the question for next time. Which of these teams messed up the yard in the minors of yesteryear? A. The Fresno Fruit Thieves. B. The Watonga Weeds. C. The Centralia Pets. Want to know the answer? Get some fresh air. Or tune to the next Ghost of the Miners. But for now, you'll have to excuse me. My producer Ben Hill is turning up the hot stove and he's about to burn my biscuits. <laughs> Since we last said to Benjamin Hill that we would be talking to him soon, mere seconds have passed on this podcast. However, nearly 24 full hours have passed in the real world. Time doesn't mean anything. Uh, ben, welcome back. Hey, thanks. It's great to be back. Yeah, I didn't realize it would be so soon. It's, it's such a bonus to be able to spend more time with you and to be able to speak into this microphone and know that others besides ourselves will soon hear it. You know, I'm with you. I like it. It's a it's a privilege to have these conversations with you dudes. And uh, we are wrapping up this week's episode of the show before the show. But before we do, we have um, one of the things that I've been most excited to revisit on an episode of this show, uh, maybe ever. And that is 
the culmination of the episode that we talked about from two weeks ago, in which the three of us went through a creative branding process for our fictional fictional minor league baseball team, the Austin Knights. That's N-I-G-H-T-S. If you didn't listen to that episode, go back. It's the last one in your feed. Listen to it. Then come to this one. And then check out our social medias, our Twitter feeds. Ben's at Ben's Biz. Sam is at Sam Dykes or MILB. I am at Tyler Mon. And there you will find the logo created for the Austin Knights by uh, our good friend, Vince Petafrezzo, who did as great of a job as we could have possibly asked for in creating the logo uh, of the Austin Knights. I'm going to give a quick breakdown of it. It's very similar to what we discussed on the show. Uh, the Congress Avenue Bridge is kind of the forefront piece of it with uh, a sort of light blue, a sky blue below the bridge, stanchions of the letter A behind the bridge and climbing up above it in front of a multicolored sunset and bats all over the place. The famous bats of the Congress Avenue Bridge in Austin, Texas, also incorporated in our logo. Vince did such an awesome job. Uh, You guys, your thoughts. This came out almost exactly as I envisioned it. Yeah, I mean, actually, it's a little different than what I initially envisioned when I was talking through it. And that's why we have a real designer like Vince do this type of stuff. Because when I was talking about it, if you go back and listen to that episode, I thought like we would have like two light beams or like just lines of bats would be making the top half of the A. Vince didn't do that. He just actually continued the stanchions from the lower parts below the bridge and kept it going and accented it with bats. And it works just so much better that way. If, if it was filled with bats, it wouldn't quite work on a hat. And I think we talked about that. That might be too much detailing. This works really, really well. There's a bat at the top uh, that kind of forms the very top of the A. Um, I think that's very fitting. It also has different degrees of orange and red. It's it's not just one. It's not just flat. And I think that makes it feel almost 3D in a way that you don't always see on a hat. I really appreciate it. It, it has all the stuff we talked about. I mean, it, it the fact that we were sitting here chatting for close to 45 minutes, I want to say, uh, and just came out of this with whole, you know, from whole cloth with suggestions from listeners. And thanks again for those of you who sent those in. But um, to see it in the real world like this is really, really special. Yeah, I mean, what what Sam said there um, for us to, um, you know, brainstorm and, uh, you know, BS on the, on the podcast and try to figure out uh, what this would look like is one thing, but then to have someone to be able to produce something coherent off of that is, uh, was really uh, a notable thing and, and very satisfying. And I imagine it's what people feel like, you know, who work in, uh, you know, front offices all around the country in minor league baseball and just any sports or not even just sports, but when you're designing a logo and it comes out well, I had that experience personally uh, better part of a decade ago when uh, a good friend of mine, Sean Kane, um who is known best for his painted gloves um he does excellent artwork on vintage gloves but he made the ben's biz logo and the same sort of thing it was one thing to talk about but when then he made it i just was amazed and i don't think i've really been involved in that process directly since then so it's really cool to see what vince did um you know it's funny the uh the houston astros you know those vintage astros uniforms are often referred to as the tequila sunrise and uh i would look at this one as a tequila sunset it's uh, kind of complementary to that sort of look, but, uh, you know, Austin Knights. And, you know, one of the, the impetus for that name being suggested, it was originally suggested by uh, a guy on Twitter, 
and uh, Chad Miller yes. Jr. at Mister Under Cinco Underscore Ocho. Right, and he initially had said Austin Knights with a K, and we changed it to Austin Knights without a K, just Knights. Um, but he also, you know, had the um, really great idea that it's a play on, you know, Austinites, like a resident of Austin. So um, I, I just like that aspect of the name. And Knights is a, a unique name, uh, at least, you know, without the K to represent literally a time of day. So, um, yeah, really satisfying thing all around. And uh, thanks to everyone who made it happen from uh, Chad to us to Vince, to, as Tyler said, everyone else who was involved in, in making suggestions and now giving feedback. And one thing I think we should say here, because Tyler, you mentioned it's imaginary. Like, this is not for sale right now. There are a lot of people in our mentions. We have had so many people in the mentions. Yeah, like, hey, if you like, make this as a hat, I'll buy it, which yeah, is pretty cool. Which will, I would love for there to be a market for it. There aren't any current plans to make this into a hat, if any Thing changes with that literally you will hear it here first we will come to you so quickly to tell you that this is somehow available for, for purchase it isn't right now also i wanted to talk to you guys about this the round rock express literally the closest team to austin sent us a thing that had like the eyeball emoji. it just said it. hmm with the thinking emoji thinking the thinking emoji the thinking guy i don't um, know if they're upset that we chose something in their backyard or if they're actually thinking about this. So right. that was that was my thought, too, because I just assume that everyone everywhere is annoyed with me all the time. So I um, including you guys. So I figured like, well, the awesome uh, backyard thing for Round Rock, they're probably very annoyed with this. But so Round Rock is 30 minutes north of Austin. Um, Chad himself jumped in in the replies and said something on the mind. E train is how we refer to the uh, to the express, uh, and then he used the eyeball emojis, and that got me thinking. Oh, what if the Round Rock Express are thinking we should play a game as the Austin Knights, and we should have Tyler, Ben, and Sam to Dell Diamond, and we should bring Chad out, and we should make it a whole thing. Ordinarily, I just assume the negative. Maybe this is a really cool thing. Maybe already the wheels are spinning, or the, the they don't really have wheels, I guess, on a train. Uh, but you know, they're, yes, they they're I mean, they have the metal things, but they're on rails, Sam. Never mind. Um, maybe that's uh, <laughs> how do you think trains work? Maybe that's uh, maybe that's what's going on. Maybe that's the, the next step for this. We're as ever, we are available, very available. Take anything of it out of this podcast is that we are available or <laughs> very available if you work in minor league baseball. Um, so we would be very excited if Ron yes. wants to do anything with this. Yes, we are happy to talk about we it. We are wholeheartedly in for that. But again, yeah. you know, keep them, keep them peeled to this podcast. And if anything ever transpires with the Austin Knights, we will let you guys know about it first. Yeah, we conversely, will. if uh, the Round Rock Express feel that we have, you know, stepped on their territory. We've encroached on their Major League Baseball granted territorial rights. Yeah, infringed <laughs> on their territorial <laughs> rights, um, suggested a rival entity to play more or less in their backyards, thus threatening the health of what has been a very successful business. Um you know, it's a cutthroat world. We're all capitalists, so bring it on. That's all I got to say. Just kidding. And we're sorry. Yeah, just kidding. <laughs> Love you, Round Rock Express. Great place to see a game. Uh, do not come after me with your high-powered lawyers or Nolan Ryan, who I'm sure could still uh, destroy us all, put us in headlocks with no problem whatsoever. <laughs> that so. is definitely true. Um, I have not been to Dell Diamond. I have not been to a Round Rock Express game, but I did write a story about when that TV show feared the walking dead used Dell Diamond uh, as a set 
for one of their seasons. So, you know, we're pretty much like we're, we're boys, uh, me and the, the round rock express, um, you know, front office. Uh, so if we want to make it happen, let's just make it happen. Now we're just shamelessly kissing up to the round rock express. Me like, take our logo, please invite us out for a night at the ballpark. Um, but Vince did amazing work. You can follow Vince uh, on Twitter. He is at V underscore Pizzle, P-I-Z-Z-L-E. And uh, amazing work from Vince, as always. And that was a whole bunch of fun. We did that just kind of on a whim for National Hat Day, and that is definitely a segment that we are going to be bringing back uh, where we'll be coming up with some more fun ideas and uh, and doing some things like that. Um, so final thoughts, parting thoughts on this week's episode of the show before the show, you guys? No, check out the logo on Twitter if you have yes. seen it yet. Um, we should get it on Instagram too. Now that we should think about it. Yeah. Yes. Uh, That's a good idea. But check it out. Give us your feedback. Very good plan. And like Tyler said, we'll, we'll do this again uh, sometime in the near ish future. Find a I, new team to infringe upon. I do think that our next one should be one of Josh Jackson's invented ghosts of the miners creations. Uh, Cause we have a ton of those. Hopefully he has them written down somewhere. Otherwise Josh is going to have to go back through like 80 episodes of ghost of the miners and compile the two phony uh, ghost teams that never existed. Cause I'm not going to do that. We're going to make Josh do that. Oh, he has um, a ledger, kind of like Ebenezer Scrooge would use. <laughs> he'll, uh, he'll, he'll be paging through his dusty ledgers, yelling at the hell. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yelling, at, yelling at Callie, Callie page 15. Where are the rest of my legal pets? (laughs) (laughs) All right, you guys. Well, we will wrap up this week's episode of the show before the show podcast, the official podcast of minor league baseball for Benjamin Hill, Sam Dykstra, Josh Jackson, Vince Betterfredzo, everybody else. Uh, And a huge, huge thanks to uh, Ronnie Gajanik, the new manager of the Hillsboro Hops for joining the podcast. Uh, For Sam and Ben, I'm Tyler. We'll talk to you next week.